Hello and welcome back to QC Uncut, your source for uncut, unedited, uncensored conversation with local newsmakers. I am your host, Sean Leary, and my guest today is Mike Halpin. He is a member of the Illinois House of Representatives, representing us in the Quad Cities, the 72nd District in Illinois, and um, it's a historic day. I am talking to Mike here uh, about a little after 1. 15 actually 117 p.m on january 6th and um rafael warnock uh has been called as the victor of one of the senate seats in georgia and by everybody pretty much and john ossoff has been called as the other victor by um a uh large percentage of the media outlets so um it's looking like there's going to be Two senators coming uh, from Georgia out of the Democratic Party, which will mean that the Democratic Party, of which Mike um, is a member, are going to have control over Congress once again and the presidency for the next two years. So we're going to talk about that and talk about some other things of local interest as well. But for now, Mike Halpin, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thanks for being back on QC Uncut. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Let's jump right in with uh, what's going on today on the national level. Um, I, as those of you listening out there, know I don't belong to a political party. I am an independent. I don't think there should be political parties. I think that people should have to run on the merits of their own background and their own character. And I think that that would make for a more informed electorate who would have to actually do some investigating as to what. Uh, the person stands for that they're voting for instead of just looking at whether they have a D or an R next to their name. Um, that said, Mike is a good guy, and I, I have agreed with a lot of what Mike has, has represented, regardless of what his party may be. Um, Thank you. I know you feel so great about that, Mike. I, you've been waiting for that validation. Um, Absolutely. But that said, uh, as an independent, and the reason why I preface this statement with that is because what I'm going to say is going to... Uh, no doubt um, cause some consternation among uh, audience members who are who may be of the Republican stripe. What's going on right now within certain circles of the Republican Party is nothing short of shameful. It's absolutely ridiculous. And from a fiscally conservative standpoint, it's a waste of taxpayer money. You have got a number of people who are trying to hold up an election, which has obviously gone Joe Biden's way. The election is over. It has been certified. Joe Biden is the winner. He won the popular vote by a landslide of over 8 million votes. And he won, by Donald Trump's own metric, he won by a landslide in the Electoral College. Four years ago, Donald Trump won by the exact same amount, and he called it a landslide in his victory over Hillary Clinton. Um, And yet, we have had to watch as all of these people have wasted taxpayer dollars in protesting and making ridiculous, baseless claims in regard to voter fraud. Um, Mike, as a Democrat, how do you feel seeing these protests take place on a local level, too, in downtown Rock Island? A robust and hearty crowd of 15 to 20 people showed up. Um, To me, this just seems absolutely ridiculous and, at at best, craven political posturing by people 
Um, I just don't understand this complete divorce uh, from reality and from facts that have been presented by multiple sources, including Republican sources, including people within their own party telling them Trump lost. Get over it. Yeah. Well, you know, with respect to the protests, it's first important to separate the fact that I think these folks, you know, in D.C. certainly have the right uh, to peacefully, peacefully protest. I think that their their goals and the information that the protest is based on is, as you said, uh, false and, and and non-existent, and is a refusal to to accept the the reality of what our democratic small d democratic institutions uh, have produced. Uh, we have state results that uh, many Republicans won in in states like Arizona and Georgia and Pennsylvania. Uh, and and they won just like Democrats did in those states based on the electoral institutions that we've we've developed over the years and and, and are a good system. So I think um, you know I, I'm, I'm glad that the results in Georgia yesterday kind of valid, validated that work and and sh- and have shown that um, you know voters take elections seriously as they always have. And that the system and the systems work, and I think we'll see certified results in the not too distant future. And and I think it will be good uh, for the the incoming president to to have that uh, ability to to promote a legislative agenda going forward. Otherwise, I, I would have foreseen you know four years of, of gridlock. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with you. The people have the right. Obviously, I, you know, First Amendment guarantees people the right to say whatever they like, um, as long as it's not libelous. And um, I agree with you that the First Amendment, likewise, gives people the right to peaceably protest. And honestly, while I may uh, ridicule um, the idea of standing outside in uh, freezing temperatures to, to uh, you know, uh, stand up for something like this as being absolutely ridiculous and a waste of time, they have the right to do so in, in America. Now, that said, as I mentioned, and that that doesn't bother me. That's, you know, what, if somebody wants to do that, fine, fair enough. What bothers me is the fact that elected representatives who are being paid by our taxpayer dollars are going through with this charade and are wasting our taxpayer dollars. They're wasting our money and they're wasting our time that we pay them for by continuing to propagate these lies to cravenly raise campaign cash for themselves into grandstand um, in order to uh, curry favor with a base that's misinformed. And they're continuing that misinformation in order to propagate their own needs and to squeeze them for money, which is just sad and pathetic. Yeah, that's certainly the larger concern. And and the fact that that we're going to use a full, what what looks like it'll turn out to be a full day of uh, of, of a session uh, to do something that in the past routinely took 20 minutes yeah. um, and, and was a symbol of how we you know peacefully transfer power in this country it is it is sad and uh, and I and I think you know with the election results yesterday I think the, the at least the voters of Georgia are trying to hold uh, hold people accountable for for these actions so I think that's an encouraging sign. And that's good. And and again, you know, I think people don't people don't look at things through the, the the big picture lens of that this costs you money, 
every time there's something ridiculous like this that goes on within Congress, they are being paid for by your tax dollars, and they're not taking action on your behalf, and instead, they're going through this circus for their own behalf when it comes right down to it to try and you know, score political points, which is, again, it's a waste of money. It's a waste of time. Um, yeah. Let's go on to the fact that, uh, um, you know, Warnock and Ossoff have, have won. Um, Raphael Warnock, incredibly inspiring, uh, Whether regardless... And I would hope that we live in a country where, regardless of your political uh, leanings, you can acknowledge the fact that it is incredibly inspiring that a man whose 82-year-old mother used to pick cotton in the South is now um, a United States senator and the first African-American senator, not state senator, a a senator, um, he's the first African-American elected to the Senate from the state of Georgia. And that is an amazing thing. And, and regardless of whether he would have been a Republican or a Democrat, I think that that's something that once again uh, brings forward um, the purest uh, sensibilities and promise of America that people, that anyone from any station in life can, under the right circumstances and with you know, uh, hard work gets to uh, any any place that they want to get to. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing uh, success story. He's you know he's certainly uh, qualified, and and he's he's got the experience that I think uh, is desperately needed in the U.S. Senate. So I was I was glad to see that result last night. Now, one of the other things, and this is something that I've talked about, is I think there needs to be there need to be more regular people. In quote unquote regular people in the in government uh, and representing people because at this point you look at David Perdue you look at Kelly Leffler and again regardless of party I thought they were absolutely awful candidates um, I don't see how I, I again I don't see how you know Donald Trump a guy who was born with a hundred million dollars is supposed to represent the proletariat and the regular man but you know that's a delusion that many people live under. Um, but I, again, it, it, I don't, I think that people get to have different perspectives if they've lived a life in which they've had to struggle, in which they've seen, you know, um, the bills pile in, in which they've been fired from a job, um, in which they've had to struggle through trying to get money together to, to, um, make the rent or to buy groceries or to you know buy a new pair of shoes for their kids that gives them a much different perspective than someone who has come from privilege and has never had to see that or worried about that and who only thinks about that in the abstract and so when you're representing a large group of people it can often get away from you that the decisions you make impact people's lives in a very real and tangible way as opposed to in an abstract situation of um, we're doing this uh, to move, you know, for politic the, the political levers. Um, how do you feel about that? And uh, tell us a little bit about your background in regard to it and how it informs your decisions uh, legislatively. Yeah, I would agree with you that that you know regular people or people with life experiences. Uh, especially uh, life experiences that aren't 
that aren't the same as all the other members mm -hmm. is a valuable asset. And right now the system is weighted towards uh, folks, uh, wealthy folks being able to fund their own campaigns or raise money from wealthy friends and wealthy corporations. And that's, that's the inside track to get a lot of these uh, a lot of these offices these days. Mm -hmm. And it is very difficult for someone with a middle class uh, background or, 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 you know, or even a uh, tougher uh, economic status to, to make it. Um, it's not impossible, but it, it's certainly difficult. Um, myself, you know, I, I, I grew up in a, a middle class family in, in upstate New York. Uh, they, my parents, you know, were very fortunate to have, have uh, good paying jobs. We we're certainly comfortable. There are certainly tough years here and there uh, when we might not take the vacation that we wanted, you know, things like that. Um, but as, as a general rule, they were able to provide for me uh, and send me to college, being the first in my uh, in my immediate family to attend college. Um, and from there, you know, with the help of, you know, federal government programs and, uh, you know, subsidized student loans and things like that, work study, I was able to, to succeed and get ahead. And I'm, you know, I'm um, certainly doing well now, having gone through law school and be being in, uh, in private practice as my, you know, kind of as my day job now. Um, but it was, even in my race, it is it is difficult. Um, uh, it, it's it's you know difficult to raise money, and it's difficult to be able to fund the campaign that you have to have. And it's only worse on the federal level. At the state level, we have a lot of good. Um, we still have a lot of good uh, middle class people and the diversity of interests. We have farmers. Uh, we've got attorneys. We've got retired teachers. Uh, we had a you know a physicist at one point, although he's since retired. So we have we have some good diversity when it comes to the state legislature, but I think it's getting harder and harder all the time, and we're we're starting to see more uh, self-funded candidates uh, run for those offices. And you know I'm a, you know I, I am generally a fan of the governor, you know Governor Pritzker, mm -hmm. but at the same time he was able to to essentially fund his own race uh, given the you know, given the millions and billions of dollars that he's got. And, and that was certainly a, a concern to me when he, when he first ran. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, it's just getting tougher and tougher all the time. And I, I would agree with you that we need more people with significant life experience and not just uh, big business experience, not just attorneys. And I say that as an attorney, we need to have that broad spectrum of, of backgrounds uh, representing the people. Now, um, Will, uh, you know, speaking on, speaking on that, and um, again, for those conservatives who have who have stuck around to continue to listen to the podcast, you'll you'll now be happy to know that I'm going to compliment Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> is uh, having said that Donald Trump was born rich and he had every advantage that you could possibly imagine in the world. Um, Donald Trump, I will give him credit for this, and. I think all too many people don't necessarily give him credit for it. He has helped create a new paradigm in regard to getting elected and regard to elections in his use of social media and his immersive um, utilization of that medium to get his message out and to respond 
um, in real time to various issues. He also is very plain spoken and he's very direct, which I, as someone who is likewise very direct, <clears throat> I find very intriguing because oftentimes politicians are very careful in what they say. They're very manicured in terms of their presentation to the public. And to see someone who is, and, and I, I'm not, again, I hope those of you listening out there recognize that I'm not condoning all the things that he has said. I'm merely saying that it's fascinating to me that he's so off the cuff in regard to everything he says. And he utilizes that platform and uses utilizes that to strike a chord of authenticity with an audience that has helped propel him into the position he's in. There have been a lot of rich people that have run for office, a lot of rich people. In fact, you look at you know, the Democratic primary, and there are several people who are very rich who are running, and they didn't get the traction that Donald Trump did, and it's because of the force of his personality and the way he was able to utilize social media to do that. Now, that having said that, that opens the door for someone who is, given the dem democratization of social media and the fact that anybody can get on and create an account and create a persona, that gives um, an opportunity to someone, um, you know, who is more of, um, you know, an online celebrity or someone who is a political expert who's maybe, you know, got more of an online persona um, to be able to reach a large group of people. How do you, as a candidate, see that um, changing in the new world? How do you, as a politician, uh, utilize social media to connect more with your constituents? And how do you see that impacting elections and, in some ways, leveling the playing ground uh, as, as time goes on? Because, let's face it, most of the money that's utilized goes towards television ads and mailers, both of which predominantly go out to an older audience. As a younger audience comes of age and those things are no longer relevant, it's going to be all online. How do you adapt to that as, uh, as someone in the public eye and as, and as someone in politics? Well, I just think you have to. You have to adapt to it. Um, you have to have that presence and make sure that uh, you're sharing the information through these what what would in the past be non-traditional means, you know. But now these are becoming the traditional mm -hmm. means. Um, I, I would agree with you that that uh, Donald Trump has used uh, social media, particularly Twitter, uh, effectively to get his message out. And I do think he's plain spoken. the The problem is what the message is and and the truth of the message. Yes, I, um, I agree with you on that. Tapped, and he tapped into, and I think he legitimately tapped into a uh, frustration on the part of, mm -hmm. of working class people. And a, a lot of the president's supporters um, are are justified in some of the anger that they have with how. Um, how working people are treated mm -hmm. and, and how the little guy is not being fought for. Yep, agreed. But the problem is that, uh, you know, Donald Trump was not the person that can deliver on that message. Agreed on that, and, too. Yes. And and, and I, what I hope will happen is that we'll get uh, more people uh, from uh, independents and, and even Democrats to, to be on these platforms and be plain spoken, but deliver the message that working people uh, are being abused and exploited by wealthy corporations, wealthy politicians, and, and folks that don't have 
uh, their best interests at heart. And the, the, the problem that we've been seeing is that social media can be a great tool for getting that type of message out, but it can also be abused and, and, and you know, I don't know what the word is, transformed, uh, uh, manipulated mm-hmm. uh, to confuse some of these issues and to, to stir these these conspiracy theories that get people latched on to issues that are just are just not part of our reality and end up being a distraction and counterproductive to the anger that they feel about being left out of of the economy um so i I, you know i I think candidates need to use social media they need to be on facebook or twitter even snapchat or whatever the new one is now because those are you know facebook's getting old right um these days so you know, our, our, our elected officials and our uh, candidates have to be there, but they also have to be sure that they're able to avoid the the manipulation and the the conspiracy theories and the theories and the fraud that's out there. Yep, I I agree, I, and I've said that too. Is that I think Donald Trump's he 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 struck the right message in the right medium in um, saying he was going to be a champion for the working person, but. He was not the guy to do that. He had no follow through, you know. And then there have been various times over the last four years where, I mean, for example, the two thousand dollars stimulus checks are the most recent and one of the most brazen examples where he's had some good ideas. <coughs> I agree yeah. with the ideas that he's had. Um, they've been more populist ideas. They've been things that would help working people. Uh, when you know he, he w- wanted to get tough on China, agree with that. I agree with that one hundred percent. I agreed with the two thousand dollars stimulus checks. There are other things he said along the way, but he has no follow through on them. And I think part of that reason for that follow through is his personality, and another part is because again he he's never really had to struggle so he i don't i think that he sees these things in the abstract as these are good ideas maybe but um he's never really had to follow through on anything he's always kind of had people around him and he's just said hey do this and then other people have done it for him and that's not how washington works and so um when it shows that even his own party doesn't take him seriously or or a large part of his party Uh, because as we're seeing today there are certainly people willing to go to bat for him on baseless uh, charges, but there's another segment of the party that just ignores him when it comes to any policy that might help uh, working people. Right. Exactly. Yeah. There are people that are out of work right now. Yeah. When it, when it, when he said something about we need to get two thousand dollars stimulus checks done now, they ignored him. Other than Josh Hawley, I'll give him credit for that. They completely yeah. ignored him. Yeah. But when it's time to politically grandstand uh, in order to manipulate his followers to gain political contributions, then you see someone like Ted Cruz suddenly step up and, you know, he wants to fight for Donald Trump. And that's, you know, phony and ridiculous. But, yeah. you know, I, I'm not going to trust ever trust a guy who wouldn't defend his own wife and his own father and would bootlick the man who would call his wife basically an ugly horse face. So you know, I don't know what I don't know what's going on in Ted Cruz's head, but uh, I'd really want to know. Um, okay, let's go on to, some, to something more more uh, more pleasant. Um, so, what do you think is going to happen now? We've got uh, you know uh, a couple weeks before Biden takes over, and 
Uh, now he is going to take over with the power of a Senate and a House at his disposal that are going to help him enact his agenda, which... Um, which he'll have for at least two years, and uh, we've seen this. We've seen this play out before. We saw it play out with Obama. Obama had uh, the House and the Senate for two years uh, between 2008 and 2010. Obama was dealing with a looming uh, financial crisis, and so was Obama. So was uh, Biden. Looming? Well, I mean, it's it's in full blown, but um, yeah. they're having to deal with a financial crisis, and. I think you know Biden was right there with Obama by his side. I would, I, I would hope it would be uh, behoove Biden to learn from the mistakes of Obama and to do some of the things that Obama didn't do uh, to help and and to learn the lessons of the last twelve years. One of which being, quit giving money to Wall Street, quit giving money to rich people. The uh, stock market has been booming over the last year, and in the meantime, the, the economy for regular people has completely cratered. So in the midst of record unemployment and people uh, being in you know, line in food banks, people losing their jobs, entire sectors of the economy, like the entertainment, the arts sector, being completely destroyed, the stock market continues to make record highs because the stock market is completely arbitrary and phony and it is not an accurate indicator of what the economy should, you know, what the economy is. And, um, you know, one of the things Obama did, which I disagreed with, is he gave a ton of money to Wall Street and he didn't give a lot of money to, you know, to regular people directly. I think what we've seen over the last year in regard to COVID is if you give direct payments to middle-class citizens they go out and spend them and it stimulates the economy far quicker and much more direct and it stimulates it in a much more impactful way because that money goes right back to a lot of the a lot of middle-class folks who are out there and who are struggling um joe biden has talked about giving out two thousand dollar checks in fact he used that as a selling point to try and get uh, warnock and ossoff elected i think that that would be an excellent idea uh, what ideas do you think Biden should uh, take the heart, should move forward with to help the country get out of this recession that uh, that we've got looming in the background um, and to help us get out of the, the mess we're in in regard to COVID? Well, I'd start by saying that the first payments uh, in, in the springtime when COVID was relatively new and we weren't sure exactly where everything was headed were, were a good idea. And, and the way they did it was to do it across the board so that people could get it in their hands as quickly as possible uh, so that they would have it uh, to be able to use. What I think we should have done in the intervening months is, is had a more targeted program because obviously, you know, just last week, you know, by the, or I guess you know, two weeks ago now, they passed the six hundred dollars uh, plus the child uh, credit. Right. But again, but again, it went to everybody, and you know, I got some some money from that, and I don't really need that. And there are a lot of folks in my situation, uh, and people certainly wealthier than me, that that don't need it. Right. And I think we wasted a lot of time uh, by not putting in a, a very targeted program to the folks that really needed it. What I think that the Congress should have done at the beginning, uh, and what I hope if, uh, if, if the COVID restrictions continue, what I hope President uh, Biden and the new Congress will do, would be to have a program 
we know that there are certain industries that are high risk for uh, COVID restaurants, you know, hospitality and mm-hmm. entertainment venues. We should be encouraging them to, to close if they need to close for health reasons, but we should be compensating them for that. My ideal solution would be for, you know, for small businesses, restaurants that are, have lost revenue because they can't make it up from curbside or delivery alone is to say, apply with the government to say, this is what my, my typical income would be for the next six months. Uh, I'm able to do 30% of that through carry out and, uh, and, and delivery. Well, then the government will pay you an, an additional, basically, you know, um, let's say another 50% of what you would have made to bring you up to 80%. Mm-hmm. And that, that encourages you to follow the health guidelines, minimize the risk to your employees. You can continue to pay a vast majority of your employees to stay home and stay healthy and stop uh, uh, potentially spreading the disease. Those kind of targeted programs for the businesses that need it most I think is a better solution than just giving, you know, uh, a server out there a one-time payment of 2000 when they might be laid off for four months. Right. That doesn't, it, in the grand scheme of things, you know, it, that doesn't help the way it needs to help. Um, so I hope that, you know, um, I hope that the incoming administration and Congress considers things like that, refines the PPP, refines some of these direct payments to really get the assistance to the people that need it most. Right. Uh, we, we've had enough time to try to plan this, but instead we've been bickering and, and not getting it done. Right. And that's what that's what I was hoping. Because <clears throat> I know darn well that if, if the, the Republicans would have controlled the Senate, it would have just been gridlock as it, as it had been forever. Um, yeah, and it still may. I mean, it's, even, it's a razor-thin margin. Uh, with a 50-50 Senate, right. um, you know, it's it's still going to be difficult to get things done. Right, right, it is. But hopefully, you know, th- and that, that's, that brings up another thing. Why is it that the Republicans can seem to stand together so unified, and yet the Democrats cannot? And it's so yeah. frustrating. <laughs> it, it is it's so a- frustrating to see. And, and I'll tell you, the other thing that I can't stand, and I hope to God I don't hear this out of Biden's mouth, is it's time is that kumbaya bs of we have to stand together and be bipartisan no you shouldn't you should use your power to help working the working class you should use your power to push your agenda the same way the republicans do it all of this talk about bipartisanship is ridiculous unless the other side is willing to do that and they've shown they're not you can't tell me yeah, bipartisanship is a good thing, and we should strive it is. It for is bipartisanship, but not for the sake of bipartisanship yes. when when problems actually need to be solved. If someone tells you, if, if it's 8 o'clock in the morning, and someone comes up to you and says that it's night, and you tell them that it's day, that is not the time to compromise and say, you know, okay, well, maybe it's dawn, because it's just not. And there right. are certain issues where... Uh, where I believe Democrats need to stand, uh, stand firm, and try to accomplish goals for the people that sent them to Washington to accomplish those goals. I I agree. I agree. And I, I th- it would be different if this were you know uh, the '80s when you had Reagan working with the Democrats in Congress and you were, there was a lot more bipartisanship when you had you know George H. W. Bush working across the aisle and you know, but 
you know, that's not that's not the case, you know, and, and that's unfortunate because I think that that needs to happen more. I mean, I see, um, you know, you and Neil Anderson, who is a Republican, you guys have worked together on a number of uh, initiatives, and you know, I think you see that more on the statewide level. People cross the aisle a lot more in regard to things, and you don't see that tribalism. How you know? How do we overcome that? And again, I, my solution is to is more of the solution of an anarchist of get rid of all the political parties, and then you won't have to worry about it. If you get rid of all the tribes, then everybody has to kind of stand on their own, and and they they sort of work. I mean, people will coagulate around the the causes that are dear to them, but you won't have just the completely mindless tribalism of, well, I might agree with this personally and my constituents might agree with it, but I can't go against my party. And that's just, that's got to change. Yeah, I I think for, there there are always going to be factions on any particular issue or series of issues. And although I I believe that everyone does have uh, a responsibility to try to do their best to inform themselves of what the candidates stand for, uh, especially on the issues most important to, to them as a voter. The reality is that a political party helps to be a shortcut because a lot of folks don't necessarily have that time and, or may not have that energy. you got folks that uh, are, are trying to raise a family or potentially working two jobs. Uh, they're caring for an aging parent, and they don't they don't have time to get necessarily get on Ballotpedia or one of those other websites and find out exactly where they stand. But if they know that there is a party that uh, espouses certain principles, it can be a good shortcut for them. And so I think the parties uh, do have a role. Uh, I just believe that the, the parties need to make sure that they they indicate what they stand for <laughs> and, 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 and try to be and, – and candidates themselves have a responsibility to – to say where they agree with that, but also if, if they if they disagree with their party on issues, they you know they have a responsibility to do that as well. Right. I think it be it can be a shortcut, but it shouldn't be the end all be all of who we vote for. Right, and well, without the political parties, the the candidates will also be and the, the representatives would also be more incumbent on um, informing and finding a way to more direct directly inform the electorate what they do stand for, and the electorate would have to you know assimilate that. You know, I sometimes worry that with for for folks that don't have the ability uh, to to find out and don't have any kind of guide as to who uh, who might be the best candidate, they go in. You know, you can go into that polling place in the dark and and not necessarily get what you want out of out of an election. It sometimes can become difficult when you don't know when you don't have a shortcut for where someone stands. Yes, we we all need to be well informed as to who stands with yeah. the, who stands with the lizard people to you know, hide, yeah, yeah. hide Tom Hanks as a pedophile. Um, so back in the realm of reality, let's talk about college. This is something that uh, is of great interest to a lot of people. This is something you uh, were a, a big supporter of um, uh, college child college savings accounts here in Illinois. I'd like you to explain that program to the folks out there listening. And um, then uh, w- another thing that's going to come up with Biden is because student loan forgiveness, because he's he's talked about that a number of times. I know Elizabeth Warren is pressed 
custom on it. And it's a big it's a big issue, and it's something that I believe in 100% because I think it could stimulate the economy in a very, very profound way were he to forgive student loan debt. Um, let's talk first about your own personal experience with the um, the Illinois program and tell people a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah, so we passed uh, legislation, uh, I guess it, it would have been in 2019, mm-hmm. I believe, uh, since we had a very shortened session in 2020, um, and essentially it uh, establishes, through the treasurer's office, establishes a college, child college savings account uh, for every child born uh, in, the, in the state of Illinois. And if if uh, the funds are appropriated, which is a big if in the current budget situation, but would would start that fund with fifty dollars uh, for each child. Mm-hmm. And the the reason that this was important is that the studies show that just having a dedicated account for college savings increases the likelihood that parents or other relatives will contribute to that account. And, and the child will consider going to college, even if the account balance itself doesn't have uh, enough to pay for the entire uh, uh, college uh, experience. That child starts to serious, more seriously think about going and getting uh, an, a more advanced degree. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 not just the fiscal impact to it; it's the psychological impact on a on a family to say it is possible for for me to go to college. And that's why this program is 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 important. Um, I, I you know I see the criticism when we passed it that what's fifty dollars going to do? You know that's not even going to get you a, a day at college. But again, the the empirical data shows that having that account in the first place, taking that first step to to have a dedicated place to put college savings, already makes you more likely to attend college once you turn eighteen. So it's. It's a good start. How can people access this? What's the website? How, where can people access this to if they have kids uh, and they, they don't even realize that they have one of these? Yeah, so I, I would start at the treasurer's office. I'm not sure if they have a direct link. And again, the uh, the goal was to get the thing funded for you know for for 2020. But with the economic situation, sure. I don't know. We weren't we weren't able to appropriate for it, so they're they're not in full existence yet. Uh, but the treasurer's office would have information about the program if and when uh, we're able to, to get it funded. Another thing, you uh, you were a big uh, you know help in the Quad Cities area and in, in our district, getting um, grants for COVID and helping out local businesses. Um, yeah. Tell tell us a little bit about that and uh, some of the businesses, some of the sectors that were helped through your efforts. Sure. So, uh, as part of the federal CARES Act, uh, states were given uh, a lump lump sum of money to put towards uh, business assistance. And the way that the state of Illinois distributed those was to try to emphasize aid to areas that were most impacted by by COVID. And our area, you know, for some time was competing with uh, the Chicago suburbs mm-hmm. for the dubious distinction of, of some of the highest rates at that time. And so uh, a lot of that money did flow here. And actually, I think when you total both local government and business grants, we got more than, more than I think, uh, $3 million in grants to this area. 
And we tried our best to focus on those industries, as I mentioned earlier, that were most affected by the disease, restaurants, bars, uh, coffee shops, uh, entertainment venues, things like that, uh, that were most restricted when the the stay-at-home order came through. And so, I mean, these are good programs. Um, There there certainly wasn't enough money involved in the program to cover everyone's losses. And I think and hope that the federal government will continue to do more uh, in in passing additional uh, assistance to the states, uh, but for the for the people that it helped, I know I know that it helped. Although it's it's certainly a rocky process. It's one kind of thrown together in in an emergency, but I, I do think that many businesses were helped by having this access to uh, grants to just kind of try to get them through these months the best we could. How um, what exactly? Um, can you give us in regard to information of, of how the state's been handling everything? I know um, things have been extremely difficult during the time of COVID. Uh, I, I for one, am someone who agrees with uh, the, the mitigations that Governor Pritzker has been putting in place. I think he's taken it seriously. I don't agree 100% with you know some of the delineations. I think that um, you know having people allowed to go shopping at a you know walmart or whatever is 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 no different than gathering at you know a church or something like that um i think there are some odd distinctions but nevertheless overall i think he's done a good job um what are some things that are going on that you can let us in on that you can tell people in regard to um um some of the programs that might be on the way uh some of the actions that might be taken to help them out in their everyday lives well, one of, the, one of the things I would, I would start by agreeing with you when it comes to the, the mitigations. I think generally the governor has been on the right track. Mm-hmm. Um, I've you know certainly disagreed on the, on the edges here and there. I've been in contact with his office, and sometimes they've agreed and said, "Yeah, you're right. Let's we'll, you know we'll we'll do this a little bit differently." Uh, but in general, I think he's handled the emergency the way uh, the way you should. Right. I do. I do have. Uh, significant criticism of the way that the Department of of Employment Security, you know, the unemployment system here has been uh, 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 overstressed and has been generally ineffective with, you know, constituents having to wait and sometimes weeks to get calls back and without a very good system for us to connect constituents to, to the department. It's been a really low point in in this whole situation and uh, unfortunately the the you know the department and the governor weren't able to haven't been able to really address that problem yet and it's a it's a significant criticism i have right uh, of, the, of the administration uh but in, but in other areas um you know with the with the big program again it's not perfect but the you know the the grants got out the door with the local government assistance and reimbursement that process is going fairly smoothly and uh, you know, local governments are getting at least some money back uh, for uh, for COVID-related expenses. Uh, I think we need to do more to now compensate for you know sales tax re- revenue loss and other other non-direct COVID expenditures. Right. But that but that's a question that the federal government has to be involved in too. Um, but we're you know we're we're certainly struggling, but I think we will make it through on the other side. Um, you know, looking forward to getting back to Springfield and trying to address these things, get a budget, uh, uh, get a budget passed that we can 
have individuals and businesses rely on going forward. It's, it's not going to be easy, but we're going to keep trying. What are some things specifically that you're going back to to really try to work on in terms of uh, you know the of our area? So for this area specifically, mm-hmm. uh, you know, trying to get some of these capital projects that I, I got included in in both the uh, the 2019 and the 2020 budget, trying to get um, uh, you know things like Andalusia Road. We've got it into the budget. We now need to get it moved up into the multi-year plan. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, work with Department of Transportation to do that. Uh, continue to to provide the funding and encourage the uh, Department of Transportation to to come to an agreement with Iowa Interstate Railroad to get the uh, passenger rail uh, line established. We're really, you know, we're really dependent on the rail, the the private company, to to sign on. And I'd like the department to try to push a little tougher line to get that done. You know, every level of government has supported that program um, and and is ready to do it. And it's all in the hands of a private company. So, um, which has been a source of disappointment. I also want to make sure to uh, continue to bring uh, local COVID response uh, dollars to the area, business assistance to the area, and try to try to recover as best we can from from the impact that that we've seen over the past year now. Um, obviously, a lot of the, the, the relief is going to cost quite a bit of money. Uh, let's talk about two um, potential funding sources in regard to a lot of the, the COVID relief. Um, I would ask you about the vaccines, but I know you don't have a, a, a whole lot of say in regard to the COVID vaccines and you know, no, the healthcare I, I, side of things. I would just say, if for anyone listening, uh, please please get it if you can. Right. Um, you never know whose who's life it might save. Right. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not going to ask you questions that I know you don't really have a direct impact on, so, you know. Um, but th- the things that you do have that you are uh, involved in, uh, obviously, um, unfortunately, the graduated income tax due to a disinformation campaign, in my opinion, um, was not passed. And so, uh, so you know, multimillionaires will continue to, to get a tax break and not properly fund the state programs. Um, but something that uh, something that is an economic boon, and we just wrote a story about this on quadcities.com. The state generated one billion dollars in say marijuana sales in 2020 in the first year that um recreational and medical marijuana were for sale in the state there's 661,000 or 661 million i should say in revenue and recreational sales 339 uh, million in medical sales of marijuana a um, little yeah. over a billion dollars in revenue how much uh and uh you know um for friends of mine who have have purchased at the dispensaries uh have told me that it's very highly taxed so there's obviously a lot of tax revenue that's coming in how much tax revenue do you anticipate to be generated and um how do you anticipate that having an impact upon the state economy and potentially our local economy um also looking forward um 70 at least 75 more uh licenses are going to be given out for dispensaries do you see any more uh dispensaries coming to um coming to our district yeah so 
on, the, on that second question, I think the answer is yes, uh, although there are still issues to resolve in trying to make sure that these licenses go to you know, more local companies, more diverse companies, and not just some big uh, conglomerate um, that you know, really ha- is benefiting from things that we've been putting poor people in jail for for I years. I agree. I so, agree, 100%. So, so that's, that's something, you know, more details need to be worked out there. But the, the short answer is yes. Uh-huh. Uh, on the initial question, you know, the, uh, the tax rate is an average of between uh, 20 and I think 25% based on, you know, the THC concentration and some other factors. Mm-hmm. So last year, the latest numbers that I saw were about $150 million in uh, tax revenue to the state. And I think that's only going to increase. Yeah. Uh, we saw the, the numbers from this year actually, I think, above what was projected for the first year when we were estimating it for the budget. So that's certainly a good sign. And it doesn't, it doesn't solve our budget problem. It was never really designed to solve the budget problem. The fiscal impact was certainly uh, beneficial. But really, the idea in passing this program was ending the inequity of of disproportionately putting poor and black and brown people in jail uh, for something that you know white people are doing regularly too. Right. And there's a personal freedom uh, aspect to it that I'm supportive of as well. And and what we've seen is we we intentionally did it in a way that rolled the program out slowly so that we can try to observe and and stop any kind of negative consequences from doing this, which we really so far haven't seen right um so i think i think it will be it will continue to be uh good for the state as a policy i think it will be good uh for the state budget wise uh, and again doesn't it doesn't solve nearly the whole problem we have uh to the budget but it's certainly helpful to have that there than not have it there now has there been and i haven't been able to find this uh and, and i'm sure that this is something that that is um would take a lot more uh a, a, a lot more work to, to compile. Um, how much money has it saved uh, police departments throughout the state for not prosecuting, housing, um, uh, you know, jailing people for marijuana offenses? Because uh, I know that was it's, something that I, I, I talked yeah. about as well, is that it's going to save us money because people aren't going to be getting busted for, for these things. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. I believe, you know, our our, our prison population has gone down mm-hmm. uh, in part because of COVID and, and trying to release people either earlier to, to avoid the overcrowding, you know, for low-level nonviolent offenders. Right. Um, it, but it, it's it's somewhat of a wash on a local level because obviously, you know, we spend, we spend money prosecuting people, but we also collect fees and fines for for putting them in jail right so i haven't i haven't seen numbers on what the net effect is to uh to local departments or to our corrections system but i, I do believe there is some savings there on that end i just don't have i don't have numbers to to really back that up yet yeah i, I wasn't I, I wasn't sure I, I didn't think that you you would have had the numbers readily available i was just kind of curious as to whether that's been something that's been discussed down in springfield or there's been any sort of uh uh, talk about you know generalization of what what uh, savings could uh, could take place. But yeah, I think as we get back into session, that is going to be a, a conversation and topic that we discuss because we're always looking to uh, refine the bill, you know, make tweaks mm-hmm. to it to improve it. That should always be all our, our goal. You know, right. figure out what's been working, what's not working, and 
making changes to to fix that. Right. Um, one of the other things that I really admire that you worked on was the fact that you helped to work to get insulin prices lowered. Um, I find it. Uh, I find it absolutely disgusting that uh, companies charge and overcharge for insulin, given the fact that obviously the inventor of insulin uh, gave away the patent for free so that uh, people who suffer from diabetes could have um, this life's literally life-saving medicine um, for free or for you know as as little as possible that the cost of production and um you know here he he's altruistically created this and gave it away so people would have it uh only to see big pharma step in and um gouge people on something that they literally need to exist and as someone who has friends and family who are type 1 diabetic type 1 being that you were born with this disease and you had no you know impact upon having it whatsoever um I find this to be absolutely disgusting, and I'm happy to see that you and uh, some of the other folks have uh, have worked on getting the prices lowered. Uh, any chance that they can be lowered even more? Is there any way that we can really kind of put into place um, it, 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 any, anything more to, to help folks out in regard to this or or other other medicines of this nature where um, you know they're they're integral to people's uh not just people's quality of life but their life but to them continuing to exist well sadly we're, we're more restricted than than i wish we were um so we the bill that, that we passed when we became the second state in the country to do this now uh five or six more have joined us uh but we passed a bill that would cap out-of-pocket insulin costs at a hundred dollars for a 30-day supply mm-hmm. which is still you know and in, in for many families is still probably too much yeah it's, it's uh, and that and that is adjusted for the the cost of inflation over over the years um so it, it's a good step but it only applies to plans that are regulated by by the state and the reality is that there are many more plans uh, self-insured companies and other federal plans regulated by the federal uh, healthcare laws and so we can't even reach everyone that is is uh, addressing this issue in their daily lives here in Illinois but we, we made it as, as expansive as we could but we really need the federal government to get on board and do something similar but really you know insulin is just one example of, of how the healthcare system in the in this country works right and it's not just insulin is a high profile example because almost everyone knows someone with diabetes or yeah. has a family have a, has a family member that they directly interact with the reality is every piece of healthcare is overpriced yeah. in a very similar way yep and it's all and it's all life-saving and it's all life-preserving and and we need to get some of these uh, uh, uh greedy market forces out of the system and and put it back into uh the, the mindset where healthcare is a is a public good it is a is it a right for every person and that no family should have to make a medical decision based on uh, a needed medical decision based on whether or not they can afford it and whether or not they can all, they can also pay their rent um it's my hope that that the the anger and the frustration that we saw with these insulin prices at in 1.1800 dollars a month for a supply is to is to see the system as it is 
and not just see it as one one specific problem with one specific drug, but to see that it's a broader problem that needs much broader um, solutions. Um, and I'm, I'm fully supportive of that. You sound like my boy Bernie Sanders there, Mike. Well, you know, I, there's a lot of things I like about uh, I like about Bernie, and he's, you know, he's the guy. You know, we spoke of Donald Trump earlier. Mm-hmm. He is a plain spoken yeah. man, and he's sending what I think is is the right message when it comes to working people. Yep. Um, and and I think a lot of people uh, subscribe to that. But the difference is, I know Bernie truly believes it, and he's he's trying to tell the truth, and he's not, you know. Um, uh, you know, everyone's got everyone's got flaws. Nobody's perfect, but when it comes to uh, you know working families and telling people that that healthcare should be a right and you shouldn't have to uh, give up your health simply because you can't afford to um, uh, to to get a life saving treatment, that's that's the message that I think resonates with people. Well, and, and oddly enough, Bernie was a guy who had a, he was a regular guy who lived a, who, a regular life and had a low income job up until his early forties when he decided to run for office. So um, he he knows what it's like. He knows what the struggle is like. He understands what it's like to to live a life of the working class. And so I think that that's one of the reasons why he's so passionate about it and why he's so plain spoken in regard to it because he realizes that the real world implications of these policies and then that's one of the things i admire about him oh for sure absolutely do you think that i mean there's there's more and more every election cycle there is more and more momentum for medicare for all do you think that it's an inevitability that that's going that something like that is going to take place within the next 10 years because we're seeing a generational shift where um Gen Z, millennials, uh, Gen Xers like you and me, um, we're you know our generations are are much more comfortable with that, are much more comfortable with things of that nature, and um, and and you're seeing more more and more support for it, and uh, and so, do you think that eventually it's going to get to the point where even the moneyed interests who have uh, you know their hands in the into you know the politicians' pockets, as well as the, the the media people's pockets, and pushing disinformation about it, uh, are going to ha- are going to have to step aside because it, as as Victor Hugo once said, there's no stopping an idea whose time has come, and it's looking more and more as if this is an idea whose time has come. Yeah, I can't tell you the time frame, but I, I do believe that the current system is unsustainable. And that more and more people are going to be faced with absurd choices of feeding their family or getting needed medical care. Um, and I think people, there's going to be a public outcry that says this: the, the right way for us to treat ourselves as a society is to make sure that everyone has the most basic health care needs met. And the most equitable way to do that is for all of us uh, to pitch in to protect all of us, mm-hmm. and that's all. That's all Medicare does right now for our seniors. Everyone throughout their working lives contributes so that they know when they turn uh, uh, sixty-five uh, that that they're going to have uh, the health care that they need as a senior. I, you know, I, I think the system can work just as well, and and does work just as well uh, in other countries when you apply that Medicare to any age group. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll get closer to it. I think uh, President Bi- President-elect Biden's 
uh, proposal was uh, to start with a public option, right. which you know I, I you know would have advocated uh, for as well. Um, I, I, I think I, I think it's certainly the way to go to at least allow people that uh, can't afford private plans to get into the system and get the kind of care that our our seniors are already receiving. So I, I again I can't tell you the timeline, but I know and I have experienced the anger and frustration of people with healthcare costs when I go door to door and that's only going to increase the longer we keep the, the current system in place. And keep in mind the current system is was a vast improvement uh, under the Affordable Care Act sure. than we had than we had before even before that. Right. So I mean even even under, you know, uh, Obamacare it's it's not gonna be sustainable. Uh, it, it certainly helped a lot of people and it was better than what we had before, but we need to do much more. Right. Um what how, how do you feel about um you know the impact of uh, the potential impact of um of student loan debt forgiveness that's uh you know it, about. it would have uh it would have an enormous impact on uh the economy uh, i know that when you have you know 30 to 50,000 dollars in student loans that's going to prevent you from buying that first house mm-hmm. uh it, it's going to prevent you from uh, getting, you know, getting a new car or a new used car uh, every couple of years, it's going to prevent you from uh, potentially uh, starting a family, right? Uh, and 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 all the economic benefits that comes to you know <laughs> to, to buying clothes and toys for your kids, yep, uh, and, and you know sporting events and uh, league league dues and all that stuff, as as I know you go through, right? Yeah, um, exactly. So. Uh, so it, it will have an, a, a huge impact on, on a, an entire generation of people that have been struggling just to make sure that, that they pay off uh, the student loans. Uh, so I think uh, um, I don't see we'll, I don't think we'll see full forgiveness, but I think any any little bit would help, especially for the people that most need it. Um, you uh, have been embroiled in a little bit of a controversy here, Mike. Um, the Chicago, oh, no. the, I know, I know. Uh, the, the Chicago Tribune. I, I we were talking about this before. I, I grew up in Chicago, and I'm I'm well familiar with uh, the Tribune and the Sun Times. Um, actually, did some work for the Sun Times at one point. Um, uh, but the Chicago Tribune has uh, included you in their crosshairs among uh, a number of other state Democrats in regard to the Mike Madigan controversy. Um, why don't you uh, ex- explain your position in regard to this? Madigan, obviously, he's like the Nancy Pelosi of Illinois. He's a, a lightning rod uh, type of figure, um, very divisive along political lines. Uh, yeah. I, I can't say I'm a gigantic fan of, of Mike Madigan myself, um, and I, I agree that I think he should be stepping down in terms of the situation. Um, but... Uh, but but why don't you tell us? Give us uncensored, sure. uncut. You give us your your side of the story here, uh, so that we don't get the spin well, from the the other media. Sure. Well, well, the speaker has always been the kind of boogeyman for the Republicans right. uh, here here in Illinois. Uh, helps them raise money. Helps them in, in certain areas to uh, to run candidates. Yeah, you got to have a and villain. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I don't. You know, if uh, if if and when he he's gone. Uh, uh, it's going to be like the dog catching the car. They're not going to know what to what yeah, to do with it. I think exactly. But the you know so the, I wrote a letter uh, with a couple other of my colleagues uh, addressed specifically to 
some of the folks that, that said that they would not support uh, uh, Speaker Madigan for Speaker again, uh, to, in the hopes not to convince any of them to change their mind and support the Speaker, but to just make sure that in our discussions, when we decide who, who the next Speaker is going to be, we don't uh, tear ourselves apart like you were talking earlier. You know, the Democrats always end up in a position where we're sniping at each other without, um, uh, you know, while the Republicans look on and eat their popcorn and and uh, and, and, and celebrate. So the, the goal of that letter was to say, hey, let's sit down and talk, see how we want to move forward and try to reach some sort of consensus on, on who will be the next speaker. And as I sit here today, I'm not sure. Uh, who that'll be, or, or, or ultimately who who the uh, who my candidate will be, but we need to talk together as a caucus, and I believe we're going to be doing that over the next uh, week or so uh, as we get back to Springfield on Friday. So that's you know that's where I stand. I know the Tribune is often. Uh, uh, I don't know if it's because I don't send them a Christmas card. Or <laughs> I, don't, I don't. I don't fill out their candidate questionnaire because they're just out to get. Uh, uh, Democrats, especially Democrats that aren't in Chicago, you know they, you know they think uh, we're. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to get into that, but they, they have a vested interest in trying to promote uh, the uh, the Republican line on their editorial board, and they're just uh, they're just wrong a lot of the time. So that's that's basically where I stand, and uh, they can write what they want about me. I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah. The, the trip is definitely a, a more Republican leaning. Leading newspaper, that's for sure. Yeah, um, and, and even the news side, you know, I read, you know, read the news. The, the news section isn't isn't bad, but their editorial board is certainly certainly very conservative, right. and and not in a. I get along and appreciate a lot of uh, conservatism, but they were very much uh, on the side of Bruce Rauner, yeah, whose whose approach was to burn everything down, not compromise at all, my way or the highway. And they were fully supportive of that that approach, which led to financial ruin for for so many here in the state for three years when right. we didn't have a budget. And so I, you know, if if uh, if I can say that they're against me, then I'll you know I'll wear that with a badge of honor. Yeah, I I just again that kind of goes back to what we began the conversation with is I don't I just don't get the partisan you know the partisan tribalism. I just. If there's a you know if there's something I agree with I agree with it if there's something I disagree with I disagree with if there's nuance to a situation such as with you know Second Amendment rights um, you know a lot of you know folks yeah. a lot of my friends to the left disagree with me on Second Amendment rights I'm a Second Amendment Amendment proponent um, a lot of my friends on the left disagree with me seeing the nuance in regard to defunding the police and and you know i i think that i think it's a bad slogan and some people are like oh it's not the slogan it's like yeah but you got to you got to understand that people people go by the public perception in the way that they're fed information and as somebody who works in public relations in in the media i i fully understand that that that's incredibly important and the way you present something is incredibly important to the the public's acceptance of it and it being implemented and so Absolutely. um 
There are things in which, you know, the left disagrees with me. There are things in which the right disagrees with me. And I think that, you know, that's healthy because that leads to discussion and and not everyone is right. Uh, That leads to learning new things. That leads to compromise situations where, um, you know, you can say, oh, wow, you know, I didn't see things that way or I wasn't aware of that. And, you know, that cut that way you can team up to come up, come together with the best solution to a problem uh, as opposed to everything being hyper partisan in which, well, we've got to agree with this because this is what our side is saying and that's what i'm seeing and and when it when it crosses the line into you know unreality where people are agreeing with things that are patently false and just absolutely ridiculous and make no sense just because they're being said by a member of their party then i i just think that that's much to the detriment of society oh oh, i agree you gotta you gotta question your opponents but you've got to question your own party and you gotta you gotta question your own views from time to time right um, you, you really have to have that level of self-reflection to be able to say, maybe I haven't got this quite right, and to listen to, to other perspectives. So I, I, I agree with you completely. I'm, I'm a very proud uh, Democrat. I believe in a lot of the aspirations that, that Democrats have believed for you know almost 100 years. Um, but at the same time, we gotta we got to be introspective and make sure that we're uh, doing the best we can for the people we represent. Exactly. So let's bring up something that you and I disagreed about on Facebook. Nancy okay. Pelosi, Mike. I yeah. I think that you know the Demo- that I think the Democratic Party needs to needs to encourage Nancy Pelosi to step aside and retire. Um, it's not just the fact that she's 80 years old, because like I said, Bernie Sanders is 78 years old, and I love Bernie, and I think Bernie's doing a fantastic job. And right. some people have taken that as you know ageism on my part, and that's not really. The fact is that she's 80 years old and she's been there forever. And so I think that once you have been in Washington for such an extended amount of time, you lose touch with reality. You lose touch with the regular people within your constituency. Not to mention the fact that if you look at it, as you and I both touched upon with Madigan, you need a bad guy. You need a bad guy to raise. You go against that bad. You bring up Darth Vader, and everybody's going to go, Well, I hate Darth Vader. And so, yeah, I'll give you my money. And yeah, I'll vote for you because I'm not voting for Darth Vader. And that's the thing with Nancy Pelosi. She gives everybody a convenient, on the right, a convenient bad guy to point to. And every single Democrat is being painted with the brush of, They're Pelosi's lap dog, and blah, blah, blah. And the thing is, is if you eliminated that certainly they're going to um you know create an enemy out of whoever it is that that's put forward but it's I th- always gonna it is always gonna be somebody it's yeah, always gonna be somebody so but i think it's gonna be chuck schumer chuck schumer is gonna be the bad he already is to some extent he is he's, he, he's is. Not, he, he hasn't he's not the number one spot but i, I think that, to the speaker but. i think it's time i think it's time for new blood i think it's time especially now You've got two years to get the, to really get things done. That's not to say that Nancy Pelosi can't be a useful resource in regard to that or a part of the team in regard to that, but I think that it would have behooved the Democrats to come forward with a fresh face, somebody who doesn't have all that baggage, somebody who it's going to take the Republicans a little while to gain traction on and to paint as you know a part of the evil satanic empire of people and under planet ping pong. Um, you know, somebody who is going to get a little bit of a grace period in order to get things done and in order to, um, to assuage that public perception that no matter what they support, it's going to be bad. And people, I think people would, would give somebody 
Um, and I'm not saying like AOC because she's just as divisive a figure. But if you brought somebody else up who maybe people weren't as familiar with, you would they would have a little bit more of a grace period because people wouldn't know how to react to them. And so if they did something good, then they would be credited for it. And you would see people even on the right be like, oh, well, you know, uh, that, you know. Uh, Mike Halpin that they've got in there as speaker now, uh, he helped get me my $2,000 checks, and he helped my small business, and so I kind of like him. Even though I'm a Republican, I kind of like that he did that. You know what I mean? Yeah, and you have a couple different arguments there. And One, the, the one where, you know, you're a, poli- uh, you're a polarizing figure, I don't think we should make our decisions on leadership based on how harshly the other side uh, attacks us because all that does is once if we do get rid of that person it just encourages the other side to, to demonize, continue to demonize yeah. whoever we elect so i think that that argument really should be off the table but the argument that someone's been around too long or that is no longer effective or out of touch i, I think that's a legitimate argument mm-hmm. that you can have uh, against anyone in, in, in leadership and and uh and it, it may be that uh some uh newer uh representatives would would be well served in that position you do have to balance it with you know i can tell you I, i've been in in springfield now only only two terms which four years it seems like a lot but as far as learning the processes and the intricacies of the state budget and state agencies it's it's really not that much time at all right um if, you, if you're really dedicated to figuring out how how it works and how it should be done um, but the, so you have to balance, you know, some institutional knowledge with some with the energy, and you know it, that's a decision that the the Democratic Caucus in in DC, I guess, has already made. Did they, they vote on that on Monday? I yeah, think, yeah, they right? did. They they did consult yeah. me, Mike. I was really disappointed. I thought they were, I thought I was going to get that phone call, but. But I, I would have thought you'd be on the hosting the Zoom for that. <laughs> I would have thought so too. Yeah, yeah. That's what so I get yeah, for I mean, catching up on so, Cobra Kai that day. Oh, good. I missed the call. <laughs> Very good. So, how do you feel about term limits? Uh, you bring up a good point. It does take people a while to get acclimated uh, to to the legislative situation, whether they're in Springfield or Washington. It takes them a little while to learn the lay of the land and to get things kind of going, to get things done. And, and I agree with that. I don't think it should be like one term or something like that. But I think that a term, I think the 12 years is a good number in terms of, of limiting people to... To, to term limits, I think that that allows them time to to uh, to become acclimated, but also uh, you know they're not there forever. And you you know you see these situations where these folks like Mitch McConnell, like Chuck Grassley, like Chuck Schumer, like Nancy Pelosi, they're there just forever, and they really are completely out of touch with the people in their constituencies. And and whether they realize it or not, and sometimes I don't I don't think they realize it. In a best case scenario, I just don't think they under, they realize it. They understand it. I, I was thinking about this, and again, let's go back to Nancy Pelosi. Um, when I can't remember, I think it was Jimmy Kimmel had him on her show, and it is in, in the midst of the pandemic, and she's showing off her like ice cream freezer. We had, she had like the twelve dollar ice cream, which I know has become a Republican talking point. But again, as somebody who works in public relations. 
good God, why didn't they hire somebody with half a brain who works in PR to tell her not to do this? Why didn't they tell her, listen, don't be showing off your wealth in the midst of a pandemic. It's not going to go over well, and the other side is going to jump all over it. There's just got to be some sort of common sense pragmatism in terms of the presentation of things in order to get your point across. And and I don't see that sometimes. And part of that is because I think people just are out of touch. They don't understand how much, you know, a loaf of bread costs or a gallon of milk or whatever because they've been so isolated and insulated from the real world. And term limits, I think, would help in regard to bringing in fresh people, bringing in fresh ideas, bringing in people who maybe have lived in the real world and know what it's like to live in the real world and know the ramifications of the decisions that they make. Yeah, and the difficult part for me when on, on this particular issue is, you know, the mo- the thing I hear most is that people want to have a choice in who uh, who they elect, mm-hmm. and with, with and with term limits, even at you know twelve years, that sounds you know pretty reasonable to to me. Uh, you know, people like Bernie Sanders or, or Lane Evans, who was here right uh, in office for you know for twenty years. I, if people want to still vote for someone that they think is an effective representative and does well for their district or their state or the country, they should have the choice to to do that. Um, but that's where that, a protege to, comes in in place, though, Mike, uh, as you well know. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that's you know, but but uh, yeah, but to, to but to limit that choice and then be potentially stuck with someone that isn't as effective. Um, is I think is not the system that we want. Um, the other thing that concerns me is that for my first two years or first first two terms, I guess, as you're getting acclimated to the discovering how the system actually works, you've got a fleet of lobbyists and you know corporate representatives that are trying to tell you how it really works. Right. And and as a new member, you you may not know any better. Right. Now, I like to think I educate myself and and prepare myself so I know what's what's BS and what's not. But if you have a constant influx of of folks in that position, the lobbyists and the staff, you know, they take control and start to increase their influence. And I can tell you from experience, that's not a good thing. How do you get rid of those lobbyists? How about doing that? I mean, I know that's something that's very, very popular with the public, is getting rid of the influence of big money and lobbyists in politics. Yeah, it's not the, it's not the, the lobbyist itself. So, so lobbying is contacting your representative or the sure. other representatives to effectuate a policy. And all the constituents that I talk to uh, lobby. Oh yeah, the difference of course. is that the corporations have the funds to be able to pay people to be ever present in Springfield, in Washington D.C., and other state capitals across the country. And so it's we we need to we don't necessarily need to stifle other certain lobbyist voices. What we need to do is empower other voices to also fill the gap to make sure that not only are corporate corporations represented but people that unemployed uh people are represented in springfield and let and make sure that their uh their representatives know what they need people uh struggling to pay medical bills uh have a voice um and so we need other you know make sure that there's other nonprofit and other uh you know lobbying activities for the people that don't necessarily have a voice and you know, I'm certainly a proponent of that. Right. And 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 I can 
consider it my duty as a representative to actively seek out those voices and not just listen to the lobbyists that's coming into my office, but to find out, well, how does this, how does this affect the other side? Mm-hmm. And to contact people that would be affected on the other side and try to, uh, you know, try to get the best information I can. What what have we not talked about, Mike? We've been on the phone now for almost an hour and a half. Of course, we're doing this over the phone to be COVID safe. We live, we do, we are in the midst of a pandemic, and I've done all my shows over the phone because of that. Um, yeah. What what, do, what would you like to talk about that we haven't hit upon? I think we've hit upon a lot of the stuff in terms of more recent news and things of that nature. Um, tell us about what you know, some things that you're that you're going to be fighting for, um, it, fighting for the district, um, trying to get enacted when you go back down to Springfield. Or, or anything else that you know we haven't touched upon yet? Well, I think well, one of the most important things we'll be facing, and it's going to be right away, you know, in addition to COVID, but acting on the, some of the uh, police reform efforts in the wake of what we saw over last summer. Right. Um, there's a bill that's been proposed, um, which is a, is a very large package, has a lot of different aspects to it, and I haven't read through it all. I'm not sure whether or not um, I can support the whole thing, but we really need to take some sort of action to, to continue to uh, build trust among the people with the you know the folks that we uh, hire to serve and protect us. So I, I think agree. that is it's one of the most important issues I think facing us, uh, and we need to have those deliberations and make sure to do it right. COVID COVID kind of derailed us from being able to do that last summer, and so it's overdue. And uh, I'm committed to trying to trying to rectify that do you think and, and i and i said this at the time and again it as i mentioned i i think that uh the packaging of the messages defund the police i think was kind of confused people and got people against the the idea whereas i think yeah. most people if you talk to them they agree that there needs to be i think reform the police would have been a much better messaging because the, i think that there does need to be some reform um yeah. there there are and i think that the um the there should be uh, higher requirements in order to get into the force, uh, such as at least an associate's degree, a couple of years of training, things of that nature. And in that way, and also psychological training and uh, more contact, more conflict resolution and things of that nature, uh, so that people, and when they get into these situations, which are so, you know, tense and, and you know, filled with potential to go wrong uh they're better trained for that and so uh i think that that's really important and um i I agree with uh you know president-elect biden in that regard and he mentioned that he said i think that in some ways there should be more funding to help the police become better trained um to be better servants of the the community that they're in and i agree with that 100 percent because i know a lot of cops they're they're good people and you can't say like all cops are bad people or something because they're not they're good people and so and they're trying their best but of course in any large organization you're going to have some some assholes you're going to have people that are racist you're going to have people that are going to do something yeah Every human institution has has people that don't live up uh, to what they what people expect. Yeah, you know, attorneys, politicians, yep. uh, police, teachers. You know, across the board. You know, even you know, well respected uh, professions have have uh, have bad apples. But we just need to make sure that we're uh, remembering the full phrase that you know, a few bad apples spoil the. Right. Barrel. Well, and I think and there, there needs so to be a way to address to get that and yeah. not just say he's a bad apple. We mm-hmm. need to address it and say what allowed him 
to be a bad apple and how can we fix that correct and and to get rid of these people right away instead of um you know once they've been found to to have been per, you know to done things that are wrong there needs to be um swift action in terms of it and uh you know there need to be ramifications in regard to it so that to send a message that this isn't acceptable that uh, killing unarmed people and doing these things is completely unacceptable and having any sort of racial bias is completely unacceptable and those are things that could be identified if there were a more lengthy and stringent uh, program in, in in order to get into the force in the first place yeah and i think that's one of the things that we're that the bill is looking at is uh, training and certification procedures and I, again i don't know all the details of what's been proposed it just got filed yesterday i think so we'll we'll have to explore those right Any, anything else that you'd like to to talk about no i don't think so but i'm sure more stuff will come up i look forward to to speaking with you again Awesome. Mike, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. As always, I appreciate your candor and, um, you know, I appreciate you being forthright with the folks who are listening, who you you represent and uh, always, always a pleasure to talk to you. So thanks so much. Thanks, Sean. Take care. And thank you for listening to QC Uncut, uncut, unedited, uncensored conversation with local newsmakers. My guest today was Mike Halpin, a member of the Illinois House of Representatives, representing us here in the 72nd District. So uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, Once again, I'm Sean Leary. This is QC Uncut on QuadCities.com.